It's a real delight and thrill for me to share with you in this orientation week and uh, recognizing the pace through which you have gone and uh, the exercises to which you've already been exposed. I got uh, some of the temperature tonight when I was following a girl coming into the chapel. She didn't know who I was, and she didn't know that I was behind her, and uh, she turned to her girlfriend and said, someone told me we're going to be another lecture tonight, and I sure hope it isn't. I had a real punchline prepared, but uh, I restrained myself uh, in giving it. A few uh, months ago, in last year's school term, I received an invitation from a United Methodist Church in Texas uh, to come to their church to establish, as much as could be done, feasibly over a weekend, a congregation in the Holy Scripture. The pastor said in his letter to me that in our church, that is his church, we have run almost the entire garment of special services that one can have. We've had revival meetings, lay witness missions, etc., uh, etc. Et he said, but my people are now at the place where they need really to drive down the stakes in their understanding of the Word of God. And uh, we wonder if you might come and uh, give us the initial push in that direction. And so I agreed on the decision of the pastor that I would be allowed to pick out any theme, any book of the Bible that I would choose to do so, and lead our thinking along those lines. As a result, I would say beginning the first part of August, and perhaps a little bit before that, my attention and my thoughts were continually turned to the epistle of Paul to the church of Galatia, to the churches of Galatia. I know that as a Christian, I had read this book many times before, but I had never really plunged into it in any degree. And so what I have done for the past month is uh, to read this book to myself around 50 times in all the versions and all the languages that I could get a hold of, reading any commentary, anything that I could come up with. And God has really been speaking to me through his word and has been showing me things that have been there and which I have read before. But you recall that on one situation, Jesus said, let these sayings sink down into your ears. And uh, I had never been letting them go that far. So there's nothing that really compensates for a time exposure to God's word and letting the Holy Spirit make his word alive to you. It is in conjunction with my study of the book of Galatians that I want to lift out a paragraph that was read for you a moment ago, the last verse of chapter 5, and the first five verses of chapter 6. The first conclusion that I came to when I read this letter is that it is not an easy one to understand. 
I've heard it said that there are things in the Bible, there isn't a thing in the Bible which not even a child, which even a child cannot understand. Well, I must be beneath a child because there are some things in Galatians I simply don't understand. There are things that border on the enigmatic, and I am sure the ambiguity is not with Paul, but it is with me and my limited understanding and ignorance. But one thing I have found in Paul in, in reading this letter is that he likes to balance a concept with its opposite. I, like, I choose to call this the heads and tails method. For instance, he will one time be talking about the flesh, and then he will move into the spirit. He will one time be talking about your neighbor, and then he will immediately switch over to talking about yourself. He will talk about the works of the flesh, and then he will immediately switch this around to the other side of the coin, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. And all through his letter, he plays concept against concept, thesis against antithesis, option against option. Now, in order for us to establish the meaning of our paragraph, really we should look a bit further back into the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, remembering that in our scriptural study for every text there is a context. Now, we won't take the time to read it. But let's say if you begin reading around the 15th verse, the 16th verse of this chapter, and read down to the point where we began the oral reading, that is in verse 26, you will find there that Paul is kind of up in the clouds in one of his theological discussions, and you almost need a PhD in theology from Harvard to know what he's talking about. And he all seems to take your feet off the ground as he delves into the Christian life as a life of conflict between the area of the flesh and the area of the spirit. And as I say, this becomes very involved. And he brings us step by step through the conflict that the Christian faces and rather... And rather than ending with a problem, which much of contemporary literature does, he concludes with a, a solution. And that solution is the way out of that conflict, which is the crucifixion of the flesh and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, that's the point that Paul is establishing. But he goes on in verse 26 and into the first few verses of chapter 6 to give a practical application of this theological truth which he has established. And the truth that Paul is trying to get across here is what is the relationship between the Spirit filling my life and my relationship to my roommate? Now, you won't find a reference to the roommate uh, in Galatians. At least, uh, I'm kind of giving you the reverse standard vision. They're freshmen, they're slow, they're catching on. 
But in light of the fact that the Spirit of God has possessed you, what is your relationship to other believers? Uh, to your, to your uh, faculty members. Let's let that drop. Go on to the better one. What is the relationship which is your responsibility to the community of student believers at Asbury College? So when Paul is talking about the spirit-filled life, he's being very practical. He is being very down-to-earth. As a matter of fact, if I understand him correctly, he's really saying here that you're not ready to live in the dorm unless you have had this filling of the Spirit in your life. Now, I'd like to make a nice even division here. First of all, I'd like us to look at verse 26 of chapter 5, and then I would like us to look at a few of the verses, not all of them, out of, of chapter 6. The first point that I want to make, or really that Paul is making, is how Christians should not treat each other. That's verse 26. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6 and following, he goes to the positive, how Christians should treat each other. It's again this thesis antithesis, the, the counterplaying of opposites, how you shouldn't do it and how you should do it. And once you establish this fact, it helps terrifically in understanding the book. Now, let me read for you Verse 26, out of the King James Version. Let us not be desirous of vainglory. Now, if vainglory leaves you rather cold and it doesn't mean much to you, let me suggest a substitution, self-conceit. That gets down to where we live. You know, uh, one time... You recall the great evangelist Billy Sunday of a few year, a few generations ago, and uh, you know, he never minced words in his language. And uh, one day he called the person uh, a liar, and somebody said, "Well, that was kind of coarse. Instead of calling the liar, why didn't you call him a prevaricator?" And he said, "Well, if I had, he would have gone away thinking I'd complimented him." So don't be desirous of self-conceit, provoking one another, envying one another. Now there's one cardinal lesson that I want to lay before you from this verse. And if my understanding of it is correct. And incidentally, the Greek here is amazing. Uh, I hope that a number of you will dabble your toes in biblical Greek before you get through Asbury College. Uh, it lights up the scripture in a marvelous way. But what is Paul saying in this verse by way of general application? He is saying this. Your conduct to others is determined by your opinion of yourself. Now, excuse me for repeating it, but I think this is so strategic for this. Your conduct, your relationships with other people is determined by your own view of yourself. And once again here, Paul is going to go and give us a heads or tails option. He's going to show us that we can go too far up or we can go too far down. 
And the truly Christian way is in the middle, a happy medium. Now, it's very difficult to get a, a proper evaluation of yourself. How important are you? Now, Paul here in verse 26 says that you can go to two opposite extremes, both of which are equally wrong. The first extreme to which you can go is feeling, having a feeling of superiority with respect to your colleagues. Notice, don't hunger after self-conceit, provoking one another. And here I must mention the Greek word for provoking, which is prokaleo, which means originally to challenge. You challenge a person because you know you are, at least you think you are superior to that person, and this will give you a chance to show off. This will give you a chance to parade yourself. Paul says, when you are thinking about your own self-opinion, don't go to one extreme, and that is harboring within yourself feelings of superiority. You know, I, I, I have a suspicion that all of us are familiar with Romans chapter 12, verses 1, 2, be not conformed to the world. You know, I, I, you zip that off backwards. Did you ever notice verse 3? A man ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, I'm going on to say in a few moments that a man ought neither to think more lowly of himself than he ought. But at this point, we are establishing the truth that a man is not to think of himself higher or more highly than he ought to think. I remember one time going to college in my undergraduate students, uh, days with a student who was had the kind of offensive habit of always talking to himself and never disguising it by uh, trying to play an amateur ventriloquist. So, so I said to him one day, uh, John, in, in quiet uh, and in secret, I said, John, uh, why are you always talking to yourself? You know it disturbs some people. He said, well, I do it for basically two reasons. He said, first of all, he said, I like to talk. And he said, secondly, I like to talk to an intelligent man. A man ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's one extreme. Desirous of self-conceit provoking one another, challenging one another to a contest. What's the other extreme? Also, look at the last chapter, the last phrase of verse 26. Don't envy one another either. What's he talking about now? He's talking about feelings of inferiority. Most of us, I suspect, think that we're too important, or we go to the other extreme and say, I'm not important at all. And one is as unchristian and as unbiblical and as obnoxious as the other. So, what is the attitude of the man who has the feelings of superiority? I'm better than you and I'll prove it. What is the attitude of the man who has feelings of inferiority? You're better than I am and I resent it. What is to be the relationship between Christian believers? 
Superiority? Inferiority? Neither. It's in the middle. It's to look upon your fellow Christians as people of importance, people who are created in the image of God, people for whom Christ has died, and as a result it is your privilege to be partners with them. That's how Christians should not treat each other. Now, chapter 6, verse 1 and following. How should then Christians treat each other? And let's begin with the principle that Paul lays down in verse 2. Then I'll come back to verse 1, because really 2 and 3 come before 1 here in the context. This is the principle. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, even before I say anything of the verse about that verse, have you noticed the assumptions that Paul is making there? Let me read slowly once again and look for the assumptions. Read between the lines. Because, you know, in the Bible, what is often most interesting is what's between the lines rather than what's on the lines. Bear you one another's burdens, and, and then we'll tack this phrase on, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul here is making two assumptions. Number one, we all have burdens of some kind or another. You can substitute, uh, and I'm not thinking of Weight Watchers here, incidentally. Uh, you can substitute uh, anything else you want to for burdens. Anxiety, hang-ups, problems, vital concerns, uh, ad infinitum. So we all have them. There's no exception. Uh, no one can say, I am burdenless. And then there's a second assumption that Paul is making. God does not mean for any of us to try to bear these burdens alone. And some people try to. And as a result, they usually crack up. Now, uh, I know the, I know the uh, person who will wave his Bible and says, but Brother Hamilton, uh, doesn't it say in the 55th Psalm that we are to cast our burdens on the Lord? And now you're telling us to cast our burdens on other people, other believers. And uh, doesn't it say in, uh, what is it? First or second Peter, cast all of your care upon him, for he careth for you. And that's true. And I don't want to in any way under undercut the fact that in Jesus Christ we do have a burden bearer. And there is no substitute for this master burden bearer. But I just noticed this afternoon a little verse. Uh, out of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We won't take the time to look it up because we are limited. But if you would check the, ch the context in chapter 7, you will find that Paul is very worried and concerned about the church at Corinth. I think it says something like threatenings within and without. I mean, here's a man who's really mixed up. Here's a man who's got problems, and that's the great apostle Paul. How did God see Paul through his burdens? Through extra long quiet times? through more Bible study, 
casting his burdens upon the Lord? Absolutely not. Listen, chapter 7, verse 5 and 6. But God comforted us by the coming of Titus. See what's happening here? God's comfort came to the great giant, the Apostle Paul, through the companionship of a friend. And I have a suspicion that if Paul needed this kind of companionship, I need it too, and you need it as well. But still there are those who back off and say, uh, well, you know, Brother Hamilton, doesn't the Bible also say I've learned in whatsoever state I am to be content? Don't grumble about it. Now, that is a precious biblical verse, but you can distort it into what we now refer to as Stoicism. This is a man who refuses outwardly to be unmoved by life. A man who, re, who is unable to share his concerns with another person. He is a self-contained entity. Paul, Paul is assuming here, don't try to bear your burdens alone. You know, I think one of, the, one of the priceless treasures that you will get out of your training at Asbury is getting into a small group in your dorm, or evolving out of some of your classes, where there can be a sharing together of the positives and the negatives in your Christian experience. Nothing can substitute for this. That's one extreme. The person who says, well, I'll keep my problems all to myself. And then there's the other extreme, and Paul again puts opposite against opposite. He's the, here, here he goes on now to talk about the person who keeps none of his problems to himself. I, I asked my wife for a better term, and she couldn't give me one. Those of you who, are, who like to read Webster for devotions perhaps can give me something. But the only term that I could come up with here is the crybaby. The man who's always got the soft story, who's always trying to peddle a sob story. And he simply takes up your time. What does Paul say to this man? Look at verse 5. Bear your own, every man shall bear his own burden. Someone should say, wait a minute. That's a contradiction. You've just said to me, and Paul has said to us in chapter 6, verse 2, bear each other's burdens. Now he turns around in verse 5 and says, every man shall bear his own burden. Now, uh, Paul had something on top of his shoulders. I'm convinced of that. What's the explanation here? Well, a uh, number of Greek scholars in the audience will uh, recognize the issue at once. The word, the Greek word that is translated burdens in verse 2 is a different, is not the same as the Greek word that translates burden in verse 5. The word in verse 2, baros, is, a, is used in reference to an extremely heavy burden. Something that one man is not able to carry by himself and thus he must ask for others to give him assistance. Paul is saying this is the kind of burdens we must share, and this is, these are the kinds of burdens that we must bear. 
But the word that is used for burden in verse 5 is not in the Greek one which describes excessively heavy weights, but it is used to describe the pack which a Roman or a Greek soldier would wear on his own back. In other words, it's a weight that could be carried by one person without the assistance of others. And so Paul is saying to us here, there are areas of your life in which you will need to share. Don't become a self-contained entity. Be willing to open up. And then he's going on to say also in verse 5, however, at the same time, there are phases of your life that you must do yourself. You must execute it by yourself. No one else can do it for you. And don't go around acting like a crybaby. Now, Paul illustrates this going back to verse 1. Brothers, and I, I just want to stay in that word, but my time's almost up. If a man is overtaken in a fault, all of these words are crucial in the Greek and deserve more exegesis, but we can't give it now. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Recognizing all the time that you might be the next one to get caught in the same spider's web. In other words, your responsibility as a part of the community of believers is that if you see somebody doing wrong, and incidentally, it's not sin here, it's fault that is used here, you cannot stand by and do nothing. That's one option which you do not have. You cannot say, this is none of my business. If we are going to take this verse literally. You know, one time I had an agnostic Jew turn to me and he said, you know what really bothers me about you fundamentalists? And I said, what? He said, you're afraid to take the Bible literally. I thought we were the ones who did take it literally. This is an agnostic Jew who asked me that question. Take this verse literally. If I do, one option which I do not have when I see a brother overtaken in some kind of a fault is to stand by and say, this is none of my business and simply look the other way. A, section, a second option which I do not have is to despise him or condemn him for whatever trouble he has entrapped himself in. Well, excuse me, you English experts, for ending a sentence with a preposition. I have no right to despise him or to condemn him and say, well, let him now stew in his own juice. That's not open to me. A third option which is not open to me is to gossip about him. And a fourth option which is not open to me is even to report him. Do you know if the Asbury College community took literally six, Galatians 6 1, the DC committee would be phased out of existence for lack of work? I'm with you. I am not to report him, I am not to gossip, I can't look the other way, I can't criticize him, but I am to restore him. And the Greek verb that is used here is a very interesting one. It would be used, for example, of a doctor who would 
restore delicately and gently a broken finger to the palm of a hand from which it had been severed. Something that, that, that I can't do in haste. Something that I can't do in arrogance, but something that I can do only in gentleness. How am I to do it? Paul doesn't spell it out for us. But Jesus does. Stretch your attention to Matthew chapter 18. This is our closing point. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 and following. Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now notice this verse says nothing about going and reporting it to a committee on a three-by-five card. It says, go and tell him his fault. And if he will listen to you, you have gained a brother or a sister. But if he will not hear thee, and still refuses to listen to you, I think along a couple of witnesses. Verse 17, if he still refuses to listen, then you get around to the D.C., the church. Tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen and as a publican. In other words, I am to tell him his fault privately, face to face. This is how Christians are to treat one another. Not with feelings of superiority, not with feelings of inferiority, and let me say Asbury College is a perfect nesting place for either of those two attitudes. But I am to treat him out of vital concern and compassion and love for my brother. Now, what enabled me to do all of this? How will I be enabled to treat my brother with respect and love? Paul says you will be able to do this as a consequence of the fact that you have been filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. And a spirit of love has invaded your life. And a spirit of holiness has invaded your life. And this spirit now begins to run over the edges of the cup. And it is our prayer at Asbury that, that all of you would enter into a full knowledge of the Holy Spirit who is here to glorify Jesus Christ in our midst. We wish nothing more for you, and we certainly wish nothing less.